Welcome to the Ankler Podcast. This is Sean McNulty from the Wake Up Newsletter here at the Ankler here in New York City on Thursday, February 29th. I'm joined by Elaine Lowe and Richard Rushfield in Los Angeles. Richard, it's leap year. What is your uh, special tradition this year? What do we have? Yeah, I got my special leap year socks and t-shirt that I break out every four years and wear for good luck and mm. my leap year bandana around my head. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> of course, and I'm going on a leap year pub crawl and then uh, oh, all right. coming home and looking for some great leap year <laughs> content on all my services. I see. All right. I don't know. Lane, do we have anything for uh, Mr. Brushfield? There's leap year from Amy Adams in sure. 2010, notably not <laughs> a leap year. Oh, what? Yeah, I looked it up. It's not a leap year. That seems misguided. It got stuck in development hell for an extra two years. Imagine if you if, if you plan your whole studio around owning leap year and leap day. <laughs> And then Leap Day falls on a Tuesday. Well, I mean, I could tell you when Leap Year is in 2050. Like, you know, this isn't like hard math here. But yeah, something might have gotten delayed here, Richard. I don't know. It's changing the studio head. I, you know, this is a, I'm a, I'm a little stumped here. We have to call Disney uh, Corporate Communications and get the real story on this, Richard. I don't know. Someone should get uh, get a script in development to poised and ready for next time Leap Year falls on a Friday. That, that might be next I have to, well, Elaine, you can, maybe I'll put you in charge of that math. So 20, okay. uh, 2028, right. 2028. if it's yeah. Thursday this year, just say, maybe that is the magic window there, mm-hmm. Richard, that can uh, finally revive Hollywood's fortunes in four years. It'll be the leap year event uh, of all leap year events. So I'm, uh, I'm putting a writer's room together to get, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> for whatever studios are left by 2028. So there you go. Uh, just a reminder, of course, before we get started, you can catch the Ankler crew over on LA's number one NPR station and Southern California's public radio flagship station. 89.3 LAist every Thursday throughout the day as part of their Entertainment Thursday programming during Morning Edition, Air Talk, and All Things Considered. I was on there quite a bit this week. Elaine, were you joining as well, I believe? Yes, talking about the Teamsters. All right. And uh, of course, you can email us here at the podcast, Richard, Elaine, and myself at podcasts at theankler.com. So, Richard, this week we have not one but two new popes in uh, mm. Studio Land. Uh, quite a holy occasion. Did you see the white smoke from your house? Yeah, or what was, uh, what was going uh, on? A crazy time. Shakeups in uh, big film jobs. You don't get a lot of those. Well, much less two and. 48 hours, I think, Richard. It's a leap year miracle. <laughs> Maybe, Elaine, that's, I've heard worse theories, put it that yeah, way. And, and even more <laughs> remarkable, uh, both are widely respected and well-liked choices. And they didn't recycle some old hack who they're giving the job to because he's had a job like this 40 times before. So uh, they're all people that have been around, but sort of freshly working at this level and uh, people are excited for I'm speaking of uh, yeah. Dan Lin who will be taking over Scott Stuber over at Netflix and the film chief job and uh, David Greenbaum who will be moving from Searchlight to heading uh, Big Disney, uh, but Disney Studios live action there. So, you know, Disney, of course, has, uh, well, they, I mean, this is not, does not involve Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, or their animation division, you know, from uh, Wish and Frozen and so forth, Richard. This is uh, just the uh, Haunted Mansions, the Jungle Cruises, kind of the Mufasa coming up, certainly, and you know, I call it Disney Fox over at Disney. So those two divisions are what David's going to be overseeing. 
Yeah, which lately has just been a lot of reboots and uh, live-action versions of old cartoons. But you go back just 10 years ago, they did all sorts of things. They made The Proposal was a, was a Disney movie uh, with Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds. You know, they made 20 kinds of air buds. You know, here's a dog who plays basketball mm. movie, you know. And under the Disney label, uh, most of those did okay. There was a business. I mean, I mean, well, remember, you know, Touchstone Pictures, certainly at Disney, is a long history of that, certainly more than the Eisner years, certainly. Uh, if you want to go all the way back to Hollywood Pictures, uh, I think it was, you know, it was there way back in the 90s, making a lot of movies. So Iger's certainly a franchise guy, Richard. I don't know that, you know, he's looking to spend a lot of money on originals, but, you know, I guess you never know. I mean, it's so that David Greenbaum is the president of Searchlight, is where he's coming from. So they promoted from within on that. Searchlight, of course, uh, the we call the prestige, the art house, the independence label, whatever you want to call it, of Disney. They have you know poor things, of course, in Oscar contention this year. They've won the Oscar twice, and I think the past six years, mm-hmm. The Shape of Water and Nomadland. So certainly some success there. The Banshees of Inner Sharon last year. So that's the pedigree, Richard. That's that's walking in the door there. Yeah, it's uh, there's reason for hope. I mean, normally when you you get these announcements, it's kind of like okay, well, another. <laughs> Another person like that to an, a different person like that. Right, who's already had that job uh, 10 yeah. years ago somewhere else or something like that. But, but, or, you but know. these are people you're genuinely excited to see what they might do. So go figure. <laughs> How novel, yeah. Reading the tea leaves, like what do we make of war? We think the, like I'm a TV gal, I'm not a film gal, so you guys would know better than I would. But I mean, if you're looking at, uh, you know, like you were saying, a lot of like live action adaptations of animated IP, it's like, do we see Disney swinging away from that? Since it's not like these have been terribly huge performers, right? When you're looking at, you know, your haunted mansions. I don't imagine that they'll stop doing those. I mean, they have 10 of them in various stages of production right now. And when those work, those are billion-dollar films and also keep the whole franchise and the name and the the IP going. So I don't imagine they'll stop doing that, but they've been so focused entirely on those, on raiding the IP vault. You know, David Greenman, coming from Searchlight, has never made an IP film in his career. He's only made original films, and he's only figured out ways to turn original films into uh, events. So one would guess that they are promoting him because they want to start trying to do some of those things and creating new IP. I mean, the, the, the problem with just raiding the IP vault is that eventually you, you, you get through the good stuff. And somewhere down the line, you need to actually refresh it. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question in a sense. I mean, you know, they had massive success, Elaine. I mean, I mean, uh, these are billion-dollar movies, but, you know, but, more, but again, like <laughs> a few years back, they were billion-dollar movies. The more recent ones, The Jungle Cruise, I think, didn't even cross $300 million. Uh, globally. The Haunted Mansion was a, you know, a big disaster this summer, really. Even The Little Mermaid, you know, got to maybe $600 million, but nowhere near the billion dollars that, you know, The Lion King was doing, certainly, and a few of the other big ones that were out there. So it's a question. I mean, Mufasa's coming out this December, this holiday season, so that's really the big, you know, and Barry Jenkins is, uh, you know, directing that. The guy who did Moonlight. So, you know, Richard, that's kind of the thing is, you know, uh, David Greenbaum has worked with, you know, a lot of auteurs and a lot of, you know, kind of, but but Disney, you know, I mean, uh, Chloe Zhao did Eternals. There's a, you know, a, a history here, Richard, of of using talent from that world in, you know, on these larger scales. So 
that hopefully will continue with David, Richard. You know, yeah, I, I mean, what they have done so well at Searchlight is not just pick great films and interesting things, but find films that can become events and they can turn things from nothing, mm -hmm. from no pre-owned IP into genuine events that people actually turn out to see this thing. Poor Things, which is, you know, if someone came in and pitched Poor Things to you, uh, you would say, <laughs> right. get out of my office. I would have uh, just, just crossed the 100 million mark there. So yeah. it's been sort of a, a symbol of Disney that they make these big IP films based on big IP, and then they just sort of drop them on the world and wait for the world to come running. And now to create a little more excitement about it is uh, what one hopes. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, Moana is out there too, which was, again, an original animated film at a certain point. But uh, yeah, that is what certain, you know, Banshees of Inisherin did, I think, almost 20 million at a time when specialty was nothing was doing anywhere near that. And that was, a, you know, a film of <laughs> yeah. two Irish guys in the 1800s. You know, again, Richard, yeah, it's like making these events out of things that David has a great experience with and hopefully will bring that expertise in. And, you know, and the Disney Fox division, it's, you know, they're, they're still out there making, you know, I think they have uh, maybe seven films on the slate this year that, are, you know, some are franchise-like an alien thing or an omen thing, but, you know, the creator last year was theirs and the haunting in Venice. And, you know, so they're, they're still playing in that live action original genre, yeah. uh, Richard. So we shall see. And, you know, remember, and Sean Bailey came in 15 years ago, you know, he was, a, again, Sam Richard, he was new blood. He was a, you know, producer. He did Tron. He's going to be doing the next Tron film still at Disney. Uh, the, the Tron Aries is the name of it. So again, this, this is, you know, not unprecedented at Disney, Richard, to have this person come in and not someone who, again, had the job you know, 10 years ago at Warner Brothers or something like that. So kind of in the in the, in the the blood there at Disney. And then the other big one, of course, over at Netflix, something uh, you've covered pretty closely, Richard. You've uh, you had some odds mm -hmm. there for a while on a few of these. Sean Bailey was among the names that you were talking about at some point for the Netflix job. But uh, Dan Lin, the producer's coming in uh, to take the reins. Yeah, and I think we were the first to publicly list him as a contender. All right. Well, you'll get your free T-shirt when that comes in, so that'll be nice. Again, it's <laughs> it, it's someone who has made quality films, who has made interesting films, um, that has done a lot of different kinds of genre from popular to uh, more obscure and someone who is uh, very well liked and well respected. So the question for Netflix has always been, are they going to focus on quality and going to make fewer movies and, and better movies? And, you know, Dan Lin is the sort of person you'd look to uh, if you want to try to make better movies there. Yeah, he's got, you know, it's, I mean, I, what struck me is, you know, his resume or background was pretty much the same as Stuber had when he came in the door. I mean, you know, so, uh, I mean, Dan Lin was an executive at Warner Brothers, uh, you know, for many years and then left to become a successful producer running, you know, a couple of Lin pictures and then um, I think it's Rideback Studios, his most recent outfit, which will still continue on its own. But, you know, produced uh, the It movies to Aladdin to, you know, a lot of big ticket items. The Lego movies that were very successful there at Warner Brothers for quite a few years. So, and Scott was, uh, you know, started his career at Universal and, and moved on to produce a lot of uh, successful big ticket movies as well. So that was what, you know, struck me most, Richard. And you have left in place or sort of uh, Scott Stuber created these divisions and his deputies continue to preside mm. over them, sort of the, you have the prestige, you have the big tentpole division, and those can almost sort of function by themselves. So the question is, uh, why bring in a Dan Lin? And it, right. Yeah, it's a good point. Keep an eye on, on quality. Keep an eye on boosting things up and finding ways to improve it because it can be just such a monumental machine putting out 
so many movies it can just sort of get away from everybody. Yeah, and keeping a you know an eye on the global view too, Elaine, a bit. Yeah, and I think one of the questions that we've heard, right, listening to all of the names float by of who could be in the spot is, well, how are they going to get along with you know that TV head and and chief content officer Bella Bajaria, who has been elevated to that role now. And, you know, he worked on his Rideback Productions, produced Avatar The Last Airbender. So, you know, presumably there's already a good working relationship going there. So in that sense, that seemed like a good trial run for this position in a way. Yeah. And that just uh, debuted rather big on Netflix and the, and the chart yeah, in the past week well. or two. Really doing really well. Big hit for them. So... Yeah, we shall see. You know, Netflix has over 40 original films just, you know, in the U.S. Uh, if it goes over 50, if you count in documentaries as well. So that that's just for 2024 alone. So as we all know, film slates take a while to build and get out there. Netflix may be a little bit faster, but we'll, uh, we'll see what Dan gets up to. But he certainly has a history of working with a lot of big talent across the board in Hollywood. So, you know, which Netflix will I presumably want to continue. Uh, Dan also did Sherlock Holmes movies over at Warner Brothers as well. Plus, you know, in, in his time as a, an executive at Warner Brothers, he was a, a driving force behind getting The Departed made and fighting for talent that, you know, he believed in, as he told uh, Ankler CEO Janice Min in an interview a little while back here at The Ankler. You know, when I hired Bill Monahan to write The Departed, there was there were several big name writers who wanted to do that, that were more popular. And frankly, that people more powerful than me wanted to hire. And I really went on the line to hire Bill Monaghan because wow. I just felt like this guy. And by the way, he, you know, at the time he was, he barely had enough money to come to the meeting. He drove from the East coast from uh, oh. Massachusetts to yeah. um, LA for the meeting. You know, he really was he like drove. living in his car. Yeah. He drove, he drove. Oh my God. Um, but he had such a compelling take on the departed and I went on the line for him to present him to Brad Pitt and Brad Gray at the time. So I think that's my superpower, identifying talent. And once you identify the talent, backing them, because, you know, again, people, some people didn't want Bill Monaghan hired. Uh, and then f- to be honest, as, as you guys may or may not know, it took him a long time to write that script. You know? <laughs> and I was sweating that decision for two years. So, Richard, no reason to think the big names won't keep coming through the door at Netflix, and we'll find out starting April 1st. Always good to start a new gig at a new office on April Fool's Day, but uh, that'll be for Dan to handle. But uh, we're going to dive into the big news over at Paramount and Endeavor this week, shifting gears uh, right after a quick break. All right, so uh, Elaine... Are you sad the last week of Q4 earnings season I think is, uh, is now oh, passed behind darn. us. You, you are right there. You, you, you doing okay, kiddo? I'll pour one out until the next three months. <laughs> and we can have another great quarter. But actually, yeah, yeah great quarter for uh, for Paramount. A few, a few good quarters out there. But of course, Richard, the big news, uh, NCIS is getting a new show. Oh, thank God. Thank God. He was running out of NCIS episodes to watch. I think you, I, yeah, we could just feel the, feel the tension there, Richard. So, uh, you know, rest assured, you can relax now, Richard. Okay. NCIS Southgate. Is that? Uh, uh, well, <laughs> this is, uh, well, this one is a spinoff of two of uh, what I'm told are uh, beloved characters. I don't know. Are you more uh, Team Tony or Team Ziva, Richard? Which uh, which one are you? You know, I support both their efforts. I don't want, I don't want to take sides in such a... Oh, oh <laughs> such a polarizing debate. <laughs> it really, really is out there. So there you go. Well, uh, the show will actually not be on CBS, Elaine, but rather Paramount Plus as an exclusive there. Uh, and the show will be shot in Europe. 
Europe. Why is that, Elaine? Ah, yes. Uh, I I thought it was very interesting that the plan, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sean, because this is my impression, the plan is to produce more overseas, but to produce more for the U.S. and not in local language. So it's like we're going to take all the production outside of the U.S., but all the audience, it's the domestic audience that we're focusing on. I was just like, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate assessment, Elaine. That's very good. We're, of course, talking about the big Paramount Q4 earnings call, earnings release, which uh, Wall Street liked, Elaine. The stock was up about 6%, but then uh, came back down to flat by end of day because, you know, Paramount can't have anything too good in the news <laughs> these days. <laughs> so let's not lose our heads here, people. The, Come on. But the, the, the one-day chart is a mountain, right? <laughs> the the one-day chart is a mountain. You are, wow, that's that's. Kudos that's to Elaine, though, ladies and gentlemen. Kudos. That, that's a, that is a very impressive <laughs> analogy there. We gave him a Paramount Mountain in the stock report as well. So, uh, as per our uh, Ankler contracts, Elaine and I have still not talked about this before the podcast. So, <laughs> fresh content, people. Uh, what stood out for you, Elaine? <laughs> well, of course, streaming, right? They're looking at profitability in 2025. For the U.S., the, for the domestic for business the US, only. You are correct. For the domestic business only. That's very important that some headlines. We're leaving out of that, by the way. Yes, but that is still something of a turnaround from what was it in 23? And tell me if this was US over its total. It was like a $1.6 billion loss oh, in fiscal 23. So. It's like, like, let's look for the bright spots. I feel like earnings reports and just the industry outlook these days is like, let's look for the bright spots where we can. And it's like, all right, domestic profitability in streaming, 2025. Let's yeah, get it. You know, look, it's an achievement that they lost another $490 million in Q4, which was about um, what they, you know, what they had forecast. Nothing unexpected there, Elaine. And the losses, you know, will go down in 24 and 2025. That'll, you know, hit that domestic profit. But yeah, that's how this happens. You know, I mean, at least unlike Peacock, who still has no <laughs> stated <laughs> profitability goal or who knows what, Paramount now has a, you know, a target to hit and that Wall Street and can count on. And that's been a part of the problem, quite frankly, is there, what is your plan here? So they've laid out the plan. So, okay, good. Now we'll proceed and it's you know, quarter by quarter. This is how this goes, you know? Yeah, and a bump of 4.1 million net new subscribers uh, for the streaming service. Yeah, Paramount Plus. So now they have something like 67 and a half million subscribers, you know, nothing yeah. to sneeze at. And yeah, I mean, these aren't yeah. like Netflix numbers, which is, you know, like four times that. But I mean, for a yeah. streaming service that has been around for a couple of years and is largely considered an extremely niche service still. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the growth will be a little bit slower. But more importantly, Elaine, the average revenue per user are my favorite term, ARPU, mm-hmm. uh, ARPU, was up 31% year over year. So, I mean, they had a, a price hike in there, certainly. But, you know, the growth in revenue is not just that they're adding subscribers. They're making a lot more money per subscriber. So, yeah, you're right. There are some positive numbers that came out of this, which I think was what Wall Street was, you know, reacting to here, mm-hmm. for sure. Which might not have necessarily been expected going into yesterday. You know, listen, to Paramount call, I think everybody, you know, nobody knew what to really expect uh, at that point. So I thought uh, Backish uh, did a good job on that. But... Usually, Elaine, you make the turn. I'm going to make the turn this week. So I'm going, to, I'm going to bring us around to the reality of the situation. Total revenue was down 6%. Again, this is the fourth quarter. So this is October through December. So this is the time of no new CBS shows. Mm-hmm. To, your Blue Bloods was not back. Your uh, our Tail end of the strikes. You know, NCIS was not back in new episodes. So they had a 15% hit to advertising, Elaine, in, in the fourth quarter. So, you know. Not great, but, you know, they're expecting a big first quarter. So they had, you know, the Grammys at the Globes. They have March Madness. Uh, John Stewart's back. They had the big Super Bowl. So, you know, the, the first quarter is going to be a little bit different. But, you know, but in the end here, it's, you know, linear TV is just just linear TV, not the TV studios or anything like that, you know, else like that. 
is still 56% of their total revenue, mm-hmm. like just affiliate fees and linear TV advertising. So, and you know. And that TV and media revenue dropped at what, like 12%? Total in total, yeah. yeah, yeah. That includes the studios, which obviously the studios again. Q four, we're not really producing as many shows as they used to be, so that you know, again, is a bit more of a strike induced blip to a degree. Um, but going forward, we'll see what that's going to be. The studios, to some extent, what they need is like somehow to just take that linear TV component out of their stock and like have one of those men in black things to like make everybody forget that it was ever part of their company <laughs> because they're all. Facing this linear TV catastrophe, yeah, you look at the companies that are saying, okay, this, the movie studio's doing okay. We're kind of growing in streaming. You know, they have a okay company, but how does all that make up for a gazillion dollars that we're going to lose from linear TV? And all these other kind of okay businesses now that seem mostly to have kind of stabilized or finding their way to some sort of stable place are unable to make up for this disaster over there. So somehow you need to just put the disaster in a bag and throw it in the river. And I don't know how you do that in a company, but... The linear TV business, and TV business in general, including the TV studios, you know, they threw up $4.6 billion, I think, of profitability in 2023, Elaine. So it's just that the number is just going down is the problem. You know, it's not that it's unprofitable. It's just that the amount of money you were getting for it is not what it once was. But Richard, I did look at those numbers. I've been very curious. I've looked at it at Warner Brothers as well, where, yeah, their linear business declines, you know, whatever gains they had at Max and then Discovery Plus were not, you know, making up. There was a, I think, $250 million deficit between the two. But at Paramount, the gains they made in streaming and the revenue actually superseded the losses they had from the linear bundle, which I brought down in the wake up today. So that's a great question, Richard, because that is, that is the premise here, Richard, right? Is that audiences are moving to streaming off of the bundle, off of linear. Okay, well, you better make up the money you're losing in that bundle. You better be making up in this new business. And if you're not, then this doesn't make any sense, Richard. And it poisons the whole way you look at your streaming service because there's this requirement on them that like, okay, well, you're doing good. You're showing a little growth, but you're not making up for the biggest money train that entertainment ever had. So that's that's on you to right. figure out a way to have this service replace that. Well, that was yeah. the precedent that was set Three, four years ago when all of these streamers first emerged, <laughs> right. right? You have right. really low prices. You have low margins. Uh, you're aiming for growth. What was the plan then if yeah. if the secular decline was already apparent then? Right. You know, that must have clearly factored into your thinking then. What was the plan? Just like let's hope that yeah, no, at some point consumers will be accepting enough of enough price hikes. And Backish laid out, you know, his plan and his strategy. I'm like, this is, and you know, it's, it's, look, it's logical. It's like they're, you know, pulling back from overseas, as you alluded to earlier, no more local productions. Like we're not going to beat Netflix at this. We're not Netflix. We're not going to spend wildly across the globe. We're going to let our U.S. hits or Hollywood hits drive our traffic, you know, globally. We spend a lot of money on these. This is what people watch. Well, and that's the interesting thing that I'm wondering what you guys think about here when it comes to the audience. You have all of these services that are really reaching globally. Obviously, Netflix with their large local language output. You have Amazon, which has, uh, you know, customers across the world. You have Disney, whose brand precedes itself. Um, And then you have Paramount, which you know, when you listen to Backish's comments on the calls, 
He's saying that, you know, Hollywood hits are the biggest draw for our viewers. And so let's lean into CBS. Let's lean into Paramount Plus Originals and Paramount Films. But we're also going to slow the content spend on local language content. So if they're really so focused domestically, doesn't then that set them up to reach a saturation point in North America? Like, what does that mean for international subscribers then for that opportunity if you're not going to lean into local language content the way that Netflix or, or even Amazon has? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer to a degree is, you know, Paramount has a different business model too internationally where they're not going, you know, Netflix is D to C in every market they're in, you know, where Paramount has these things called hard bundles. So like Walmart Plus here, where you subscribe to a, a subscription service, you get free Paramount Plus with it and Paramount gets a, essentially some sort of a wholesale fee or whatever it might be, a lower fee per subscriber. So in that case, you have a home, you know, Paramount Plus home and a streaming service, like a, like a, a tab, like a Nat Geo tab inside of Disney, like that, inside of Disney Plus. So, you know, I'm giving you semantics in LA, but I get, you understand exactly what you're saying, but I think their bar to success is not like, oh, we have to have subscribers coming in the door in all these markets. It's like, no, and some of them, you know, we don't need to, we just have to have these Tom Cruise movies and, you know, uh, big, you know, Bob Marley and things like that. And that's going to be what drives us. And they're happy and we're happy and we get the engagement and everybody knows Ray Donovan around the world. So we're going to do another Ray Donovan series. Everybody knows, you know, NCS is sold in every, you know, country in the world. We're going to do another one of those and get the stars back. And, you know, so it's just different. It's not better or worse. Yeah. Right. And that makes sense. I think it was their CFO or somebody had said on the call that their streaming subscribers outside of North America or outside of the U.S., most of their time is spent on, you know, watching Hollywood 90% stuff. 90% of the Like you time, said, yeah, yeah like yeah, Tom Cruise yeah. or whoever, right? Yeah. And that's fine for like uh, a short-term or medium-term play, but it's like we, we talk about this too, like at the Ankler, right? Of like you're sort of your last movie stars, your big, um, you know, American Hollywood stars. Like what happens when that starts to get even more diluted and you don't have as much of like these homegrown household names? Like what's sort of like the 10-year outlook for that? 10 years, Elaine, what you, well, let's make it through the quarter here. What do you, what do, you do? <laughs> what, kind of, what is this 10 years you speak of? Uh, 2030s, come on. Who, who's going to own Paramount at that point, Elaine? Come on. That, that's their problem, so don't worry about that. <laughs> at this point, it's, it's, I think it's, it's that rationality, Elaine, of getting back to like, all right, I can see where this makes sense. And again, they're shooting these shows abroad. So yes, mm-hmm. Ray Donovan is known here and that will appeal to the people here. And it's going to be set in the UK and Europe. So we'll hope, you know, in theory, have a little more, you know, have that appeal uh, to those global audiences. So that, and it's going to be, you know, presumably cheaper, but regardless, Elaine, they're going to be spending less on TV series at this point. You know, that's, that's the rub it sounds like from the call as well. Just what every writer and showrunner out here wants yeah, to hear, you know, I'm sure. Yeah, putting jobs overseas and uh, spending less <laughs> on series. So, but yeah, every you know, every company has to run their own game. You, you know, they're not playing the same game, and it's important. You know, just because you're all in the same entertainment business doesn't. There's not one way to do this, Elaine. I think this is what Paramount's trying to you know get the message across. Is like this is our strategy. This is why we're doing it. It's not the same as Netflix, but. It works for us and it works for the size of the company that we are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying it's necessarily the wrong strategy. I just think it's so interesting because this seems to be, out of any of the other streamers, the most starkly contrasted strategy than a Netflix or a Disney or an Amazon or whoever. But one final note, they will be writing off $1 billion in Q1, Elaine. So at least some things, you know, still keep going here. But Got to keep with tradition. Over at the box office, Richard. Yeah. Dune 2 has, a, the savior has arrived. Yeah. Dune 2 is going to save right. the movie business. Are you ready? Well, it's going to save a little bit of it. It feels like a long time since there have been a big uh, 
sort of four-quadrant-type blockbuster headed our way, which Dune 2 looks to be, unless it uh, disappoints us all. But uh, it's been getting <laughs> great buzz. The sci-fi fans love it. The uh, the critics love it. The big spectacle with stars, with real stars in it. Something to make everybody happy here. Let's hope so. Yeah, it's a $190 million movie, so they have some money to make back here. Legendary movie coming out through uh, their partner at Warner Brothers on this. Um, the first one, you know, cleared uh, $430 million worldwide. So that's promising. And that one debuted, that's, that was back in the Project Popcorn era. So that actually debuted on HBO Max back in the day, uh, the same day it hit theaters. So, you know, the tracking, uh, you know, Warner Brothers is at 65. Everybody's like, you're crazy. Uh, more like 80, possibly even 90. So we'll see where the numbers come in. Elaine, are you a Dune person? I have not seen the first one, no. And I will tell you, the Zendaya movie I'm more excited about is Challengers coming in <laughs> April. <laughs> the, the Zendaya tennis movie, yes, exactly. Elaine will be first online for that one. Uh, yeah, we can work at your angle for the premiere, I'm sure, on that. Uh, Richard, you, are, you, are you doing guy? Are you in or are you out? What do you got here? Yeah, I, I, I liked the first one a lot. It was it was pretty great. A uh, little slow, okay. but... Uh, Visually stunning, as every single person who sees it says. So, yes. Yeah, that's such a labored fashion. It's, it's, well, it's, such, a, uh, <laughs> it's, it's such a poster um, pull quote uh, there, but mm. uh, indeed it is visually yeah. stunning. So, yeah. Either way, it's it's an event, Peter. Back to we, we talk a lot about creating events here, Richard, and this is definitely uh, feels like an event. Speaking of, I mean, we I'm sorry, we glossed right over the most important news for cinema, which is that oh. the. Uh, the brother of the director of Strays is now running Disney, so we can oh we can God. fast track. <laughs> we can expect that a, a Strays uh, cinematic universe is going to be fast tracked. I was like, "What is the Strays tie-in now? Like, where is he going with this?" <laughs> you had it in your mind. You're like, "The wheels were turning." Strays yeah. is conquering all. I assume they will buy uh, Disney. Will be buying it from Universal and uh, and talking about sequels, reboots, uh, spinoffs, and everything else immediately that it, yeah. that it deserves. We'll keep an eye out for that uh, here at The Ankler. Of course, just a nod to check out uh, Elaine had a great interview this week in her series business column. A special guest there, Elaine? Lindsay Doherty, the colorful, charismatic leader of the Teamsters uh, Hollywood version, Local 399, which represents truck drivers and uh, location managers, mechanics, casting directors, and animal wranglers. They are going to be, starting on Monday, negotiating their health and right, pension Monday, yeah. plan alongside Hollywood Basic Crafts, the rest of them, of course, and um, and IATSE. Yeah, yeah, good read to check out over at theangler.com. Uh, and Elaine, your your tennis dreams are finally coming true this weekend. What's up uh, for next weekend? That's where business? I was headed with the uh, Zendaya Challengers. That was supposed to be like a real smooth segue into <laughs> this weekend. but We had to get the strays mentioned in. I'm sorry. We had to put the strays in. in. That's fine. Yeah, I get that's it. All right. okay. <laughs> so what's going on? Okay, so the Netflix Slam, the, the, the hotly anticipated live Netflix event on the heels of the, what was it, the golf racing event that you went to, yeah, Richard, last year? A little more prestigious, I think. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So we've got uh, Rafa Nadal, who is coming off of a year of injuries, facing off against the next-gen star Carlos Alcaraz in an exhibition match in Vegas at Mandalay Bay over the weekend. So I'll be there to cover it. I mean, the interesting part of this is this is part of Netflix's live programming, right? Like we've right. got WWE coming up in 2025. And in the meantime, we have a lot of one-off events. We had the SAG Awards uh, stream live on Netflix last week, Netflix right. Slam yeah. this upcoming week. It all feels a little bit 
mm, testing the waters or maybe not even testing, but just setting up viewer expectation that you can come and watch live events on Netflix. But I will be there for the tennis and also to speak with Netflix's head of unscripted and, and head of live. Oh, okay, cool. All right. That'll be in the column on Monday. Yep. Yeah. We'll have a, we'll have a full on story. Uh, I'll give everybody the play by play literally on (laughs) Monday morning. Bonus content, people. Mandalay Bay, where it's being held, was traditionally considered one of the the better uh, buffets on the strip. It was an all-seafood buffet. Oh. I looked it up. They closed down, unless oh. I'm wrong. Oh, no. There is no more buffet at Mandalay Bay. I think it was a COVID-era thing. Wow, that that will be a short uh, short update then. Uh, <laughs> uh, I can, something of a Vegas buffet connoisseur. I'm sure you can find another one somewhere. I, you know, just, just, I don't think I'll have time to trek all the way down to Caesars to go to the Bacchanal. Uh, that's my number one. Huh. That's, that's very sad. Well, they do have a wave pool at Mandalay Bay. I'm I think that's still up early, so <laughs> you can enjoy that. On an empty stomach, yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, follow all of the Lance Adventures there. Uh, yeah, so Monday in series business. Uh, and ESG also has a new piece this week looking at what the data is now telling us about the success of the weekly episode streaming release strategy versus the good old binge, uh, all episodes at once, which you can read uh, right now over at theankler.com. I'll, of course, break down all of the Dune Part 2 box office numbers to know, as well as the rest of the chart. My box office breakdown Sunday night in the Wake Up newsletter, which you get as part of your Ankler subscription. Subscription? What's that? You have no idea we write columns about all this stuff? Well, yes, you can read all of our material over at theankler.com. And we, of course, encourage you to email us here at the podcast anytime at podcasts at theankler.com and follow the Ankler on the socials at the Ankler uh, on your platform of choice. Elaine and Richard, a pleasure as always to see you both. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next time. 